on chapter 14, continuing in our exposition of this tremendous recounting of the life of Christ by the Apostle John. John 14, verses 25 to 31, our text this morning. John 14, 25. Let's read it together. I'll read you, follow along. John 14, 25. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. As we have recounted even this morning, the present world scene is filled with unending difficulties and ever-present problems. In case you forgot that, let me remind you of a few of these flashpoints of conflict and uncertainty, lack of peace on the world scene. Endless anxiety and fear. Things like Russia's war with Ukraine rages on as world, world powers now threaten nuclear war. North Korea continues their missile testing and their braggadocious claims of impending war with surrounding countries. China makes ever-increasing threats to reclaim Taiwan while waging war internally against its own citizens. The world economy is languishing and bloating with inflation ready to burst and send most countries into a panicked recession or worse, a depression. The political scene in our own country is robust with the daily conflict of ideas seeming to be from different planets, completely and entirely opposed to one another. The squishy middle has all but disappeared. Now right versus left compete over values that cannot coexist for long in a civil society. The advance of immorality and promiscuity have hit levels of of popularity and acceptance, bringing about celebration and rejoicing on the societal scene that has never been known, not just in our country, but worldwide. You can hardly go out in public without being confronted with the LGBTQ plus agenda. And in light of that and many other things, homes are being destroyed, marriages are failing, the marriage rate itself is near record lows, children are seen as a burden rather than a blessing, killed in the womb rather than allowed to live, that mom and dad don't have to deal with with the difficulty. On top of all of that, you this morning are dealing with your own flashpoints of trouble in your own life. Things beyond my or anyone else's comprehension. Your health concerns or the health concerns of a loved one. Relationship struggles within your immediate or extended family that seem to just be getting worse. Major decisions facing you of finances or career or housing or vehicles or on and on and on and on. Overwhelming you and paralyzing you to not know what to do next. On top of that, you think of the world that your kids and grandkids are entering into and you do the shiver and shake of soul. How in the world will they ever survive? 
And then you come this morning into the body of Christ and see that not all is perfect here either. That there's problems in our midst and in relationships you may have among brothers and sisters here. You throw all these things into the pot and you start mixing it, turn up the fires of circumstance and difficulty, and you brew quite a stew of anxiety and fear. In John 14, the disciples in the upper room are facing something similar with Jesus. The, the pot of anxious stew is being stirred in their hearts. Jesus has told them that he'll not be with them much longer. He's made it clear to them that he's, he's leaving. He's going to go to a place to prepare for them and to come back and get them, but they can't come to that place yet. He's also exposed the traitor among them, and while he did that, he let them know that all of them will fall away to some level that very night. That when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will flee. They're also very confused as they listen to Jesus explain these whole things. They have question upon question, and the the narrative is carried along by their questions, the very few we know that they asked. And their anxiety builds as the stew of fear is stirred by more and more trouble. And what does Jesus do? Weary soul, what does Jesus do for you today? How does he speak to to your brewing pot of fear and anxiety with ever-increasing flashpoints of trouble and trial? Well, to the disciples and to your very heart this morning, he speaks words of comfort and affirmation. He tells them things that are true no matter what is happening circumstantially. He lets them know that in his absence, there's things that are true that actually make his absence good. Letting them know they can walk by faith, believing what he has said, even though all of their circumstances come against them to make them doubt if it's actually going to all work out. Instead of anxiety and fear stirring their hearts, they're to find peace in Christ. You have a small child in your home or you remember those days when you did, you remember the moments when they were deathly afraid of the dark. They go through that season, those weeks or months or some years, where they just can't stand to be by themselves alone in the dark. And as a good parent, when you're not in your moment of frustration with the whole situation, you lovingly hold them and you remind them of what? Of everything that is true in light of all of their fears. Mom and dad are in the next room. It'll be okay. That monster you fear doesn't exist. It will be okay. The noises you heard are nothing to be concerned about. It's this or it's that. It will be okay. We'll leave the nightlight on. It will be okay. Those child's fears and anxieties need to be answered with the truth. Similarly, Jesus speaks to his disciples and to us five assurances to calm and comfort their hearts and ours in a world filled with anxiety and fear. If we are in Christ by faith in him, we hold fast then to these assurances to walk by faith. The first assurance Jesus mentions is that the Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming in verses 25 and 26. It's the same promise he gave last week. We considered it extensively there. He repeats and adds more light to that promise in this text. Last week we learned that the the Spirit was sent from the Father at the request of the Son. 
that he would come as the, the paraclete, the helper, the counselor, the guide. He would stay with the disciples. He would never leave them. Though Jesus was leaving, the Spirit would come and would never depart. He taught us that he is the Spirit of truth, that he will forever lead them into the truth, <clears throat> and that he came to dwell with them, to make his home on earth in them, and to prepare them for the home that Jesus had left to prepare for them. And so the Spirit resides in them to make them ready. Now in our text, in verses 25 and 26, he adds that promise and he says this helper is the Holy Spirit. He's the one sent by the Father in the name of Jesus to the disciples. And this Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will teach you all things and will remind you about all that I have said to you. So here we see spelled out by our Lord the, the focal point of the Spirit of God's ministry in the life of the believer. I've told you that the next few chapters are rich with truth and teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit directly from the mouth of the Son, our Lord Jesus. He does that so clearly here. He says the, the Spirit of God is an ever-present teacher in the life of the believer. He dwells within, never leaving. And in dwelling within us, He is forever teaching us, leading us into all truth, reminding us of all that we need to know for life and godliness, of all that Jesus has said. This promised work of the Holy Spirit is quite obvious to these 11 apostles in the upper room. As they go forward from here, it's to them preeminently, but it's also to us. But first to them. They're going to leave this upper room after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, they're now going to become the foundation of the church, commissioned by Christ, having seen the resurrected Christ. They will now be given the Spirit of Christ to go forward and build the church of Christ. And they will go forward to build the church of Christ, filled by the Spirit, being reminded and taught all things of the truth by the Spirit. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, no prophecy was ever produced by man, but men spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. This is divine inspiration of the Scriptures, promised by Jesus in the upper room to his 11 apostles, a 12th added later. This promise is that the Spirit will come upon you, will teach you, and will remind you, and you will be the foundation of the church as you proclaim the truth. As you follow their trajectory of what happens to them, just follow the history of these 11 men. Does the Spirit of God come upon them and does He remind them and what is the result? Well, you know that story. If you just flipped over a few pages to Acts 2, the Spirit of God falls upon them on the day of Pentecost and as He does when they're praying in the upper room, what happened next? He came upon each one of them. What did they do next? What was the evidence in Acts 2, of the Spirit of God coming upon them in power. Well, in Acts 2, verse 4, Luke says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what was it that they were saying in other tongues? Well, again, we're told in verse 11, through the testimony of the crowd that gathered to hear it, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so follow the revelation here of Acts 2. The Spirit of God comes upon them. 
The Spirit of God empowers them to speak in languages they did not know to people gathered in Jerusalem who did know that language so that they could specifically proclaim the mighty works of God to people who wouldn't fully understand in the Hebrew language that they would normally speak in. And what did they namely proclaim of the mighty works of God? Well, if you keep reading in Acts 2, you find out that we get one of those sermons listed for us as the sermon of Peter to the whole crowd. And what does he say? He says, this Jesus whom you just killed is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Let me prove it to you. From your own Old Testament Scriptures, let me make known to you that this Jesus is the one promised by God and He was killed by you and He was raised from the dead by the power of God and He is returning to judge the living and the dead. How did Peter do that? Because he's so smart? He's so amazing as an apostle of Christ? No, because the Spirit of God came upon him and taught him and reminded him and empowered him to proclaim Jesus Christ. This is the testimony then of the 27 books of Scripture known as our New Testament. It's the evidence of the Spirit of God's work through these men in keeping with the promise of verse 26. They were taught all things by the Spirit of God and they were reminded of all that Jesus had taught them and now that is given to us, preserved for us by this same Spirit for the building and keeping of His church. I know you know that doctrine. But you can never forget that doctrine. This is the Spirit's role primarily, preeminently with these apostles to teach them and remind them of the truth. The Spirit of truth came upon them to teach them truth. So the Spirit's coming. The second assurance is that peace is staying. Peace is staying. Jesus tells them in another assurance in verse 27 to calm their hearts that His peace is staying though He is leaving. He's soon to depart, but he's going to give them his peace. In verse 27, he says three things in particular about his peace. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write these down. He says that it is his peace. It is his peace. He says that it's an otherworldly peace. It's an out-of-this-world peace. It's a, a peace beyond what the world can give you. And it is a peace that must be applied. It's his peace, it's another worldly peace, and it's a peace that must be applied. The first one, it's his peace. Jesus is not offering a, a vague and undefined peace to the disciples. He's not just going to pat them on the head in the upper room and say, they're there, it will be okay. I will give you my peace, you will be fine. Somehow it will all work out. No, he makes this bold and, and unshakable promise to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's a peace that, that he knows and a, a peace that he will soon win for them. And when you think of peace, what do you normally think of? In the human realm, we often define it in the absence of things. So peace is defined by what isn't there. The absence of conflict and of war. The absence of distraction and difficulty. The absence of despair and depression the absence of, of trouble and trial. That is usually our definition of peace. When the Jews thought of peace, dating way back to the Old Testament, they thought of, of shalom, of positive blessing. 
The scripture, when it presents peace, goes beyond just the absence of things to the increased presence of something greater. The presence of something that that blesses you, that's multiplied to you and gives you a, a whole life experience of the blessing of God. That's exactly what Jesus is offering here. He's offering his peace. It's a positive blessing in relationship to his Father. And what is that positive blessing? You're ahead of me here, but let me catch up. What is that positive blessing? It is his payment for your sin on the cross. He has won peace with God, securing for you the forgiveness of your sins through the sacrifice of himself. This is a peace that only Jesus can give, right? Other pieces can be talked about and given and sought after. There is only one who can give this peace. And so when he says, my peace I give to you, of all the things that that peace secures for us, preeminently it secures this for us. Peace with God. Peace with God. In the first century, when Jesus was speaking these words, they lived under what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was an empire-wide tranquility. The Roman Empire was known for how orderly and, and nice it was. So very similar, honestly, to the United States of America in the last 200 years. A civil society functioning well, often in justice not perfect, but so much peace. That Pax Romana was won with a mighty sword. It was a a peace that was secured by the defeat of enemies. And it was a peace that was guaranteed by the ongoing use of the sword. And you need not think past the next day in Jesus' life to understand that. The reason Jesus will go to the cross from the Roman perspective is to keep The peace. Pilate will try every way he can to get out of this. Because he realizes Jesus is not guilty, does not deserve death. It's an unjust sentence and he wants out. But when he is convinced that there will be a riot on his hands and he'll be accountable to the emperor in Rome at the behest of the Sanhedrin, he says, fine. Take him and kill him, but I wash my hands of it. As if he could do that. It was all about maintaining Peace in Rome. The disciples here in the upper room, I think, when Jesus talks about peace, are largely assuming that he is about to usher in an even greater peace by wielding an even greater sword. That he's going to surpass the peace of Rome by having a bigger sword than Rome, namely a divine sword. They're believing and by faith accepting the promises of the Old Testament where the Messiah is said to to sit as as prince over all the nations of the earth. So they're assuming this prince, this Messiah, is going to do that, and they're going to be a part of it, and they want to know, am I sitting on your right hand or your left in your kingdom, right? Can we be at the head of the table, sitting next to you, enjoying peace in your kingdom, won by your mighty divine sword? But Jesus says, I'm about to secure for you a peace that I can give to you, and it's a peace that runs far deeper and Last far longer, it's a peace that's going to require the divine sword of justice to fall upon me, myself, Jesus says. 
I'm not going to wield a bigger sword to get a bigger piece. I'm going to give my life as a ransom underneath the divine sword of justice. So that God can be just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1.19, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The peace is defined earlier in the verse. And then the way the peace is won is told to us later in the verse. It's a peace that unites all things together in God, whether in heaven or on earth. And it's a peace won by his sacrifice on the cross. So I Romans 5 verse 1, as, it, as Paul explains the gospel in that glorious book, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the peace that Jesus promises to leave with his disciples a peace with God built upon the grounds of His sacrifice for our justification. Justification meaning that we are declared righteous in the courtroom of God. Given the righteousness of Christ, enabled to be right with God for all of eternity. That is secured for you. That peace is given to you as a gift of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The world offers you a peace. It's a peace of, of here and now. This is an otherworldly peace. Peace of the world that it offers is concerned with the present moment and the immediate future. A peace defined by the absence of things which burden and frustrate us. A peace which frees us from anxiety of war and of living in an unjust society. It's a peace which guarantees our personal freedoms and allows us to live in safety and comfort and personal choice. Frankly, it's the peace that largely drives the engine of the American dream. We could just get back to some level or some nostalgic point in America's past and enjoy all that was secured for us underneath our government. We would know the, the freedom and the peace brought to us in personal choice. Human government in the American mind is largely thought of in terms of guaranteeing my safety and my freedom so that I can have peace, absence of trouble. Beyond that, we, we operate in our lives in a way to, to keep people at bay so that we can keep our own peace. We build our houses in such a way that we enter into them and never have to engage with our neighbors unless we intend to to keep them out of our lives so that we can have peace. The world offers this kind of peace. It sits at the heart of so many relationship problems, whether in marriage or between parents and children or within the workplace of the church. It's a peace that's largely driven by selfish desires and self-oriented needs. And the irony of it all is that the, the pursuit of that kind of peace doesn't bring any peace. I had this experience yesterday. We had a, a massive crisis with our lawnmower that needed fixed immediately. Had to jump in and try to help and blew up in my face. I mean, not literally, but might as well have. That's how I felt. And as I worked through that issue with all those involved in my family, 
I just wanted peace, this kind of peace. The absence of conflict, because I had stuff to do. I had things to take care of that were more important than this stupid tire. And I wanted it to go away so that I could get back to what I thought was more important. And it was a self-focused, self-pleasing desire that drove my engagement. And guess what happened? Surprise, surprise. Guess how that turned out with the relationships in the room? Not great. It did not bring peace. There was trouble all around. And I was the instigator. Why? Because I wanted a peace that the world offers. I wanted a peace that my own heart puts out there as a carrot dangling me to pursue after sin. And it turns into a train wreck every single time. This is the kind of peace the world says to you, you can have this. But Christ says, I give you a different peace. I give you a peace with God that transcends and supersedes all problems, all difficulties, all trials, all temporary conflicts, all things that would stir affliction and anxiety and fear in your heart. There is a a bedrock of peace at the foundation of our faith. It is that we are united in Christ and at peace with God. And if it is given to us, then it must be applied by us. You must with me again rejoice in the Scriptures. Beloved, how we ought to love this book. Christ does not say to you something that is true but unhelpful. He doesn't give you the truth and then expect you to figure it out from there. No, He's real and honest and relevant always. As he says in verse 27, look at it again. He gives you the bedrock truth. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? End of story, period. End of sentence. Close the book. Done. You have peace. It's over. He goes on. Commanding us, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He's calling us to build upon the foundation of our peace with God. To run to Him as our shelter in the storm, knowing that in Him we always find peace. Not letting your hearts be troubled is the same word He used back in verse 2 when He says, don't let your heart be stirred up. Don't let it be caught up with all the, the troubles and anxieties of the present moment. Don't let the winds howling and the Storm clouds rolling in and the lightning striking in your life. Don't let it cause you anxiety and fear. Rather, you as His disciples are to appropriate His truth. Apply His truth. Take what is true and live in light of it. The peace, He says, is here. It will never leave. It never goes on vacation. It never forgets to show up for work. The peace of God through Jesus Christ is bedrock that never moves upon which you can build every aspect of your life and faith and pursuit of godliness. But you must apply this to your heart and your mind. So as the storm of life rolls down the plains and the winds of turmoil kick up and the breeze starts to blow through the house of your life, Jesus says you have to close the windows, button down the hatches, and prepare for the storm. 
Apply the reality of this peace to your own soul. When the illness of those anxious thoughts start to plague your heart and attack your mind, you must apply the gospel medicine and be healed. We must remember in that moment that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Even though every circumstance in our life in that moment is telling us differently. We must choose to run into the ark of safety who is Christ and close the door with Noah and his family believing that we will make it through the worldwide flood. And we will come out the other side and he will open up the door and he will let us enter into a new world. You must apply and appropriate the peace of Christ in your present moment. Do you remember that wonderful text in Ephesians 6? I, I ought not go here, but I will. Turn there with me if you would. Ephesians 6, calling us to put on the spiritual armor of the faith. Making known to us that this life is a battle. It is hard. It is full of conflict and difficulty. Troubles do loom on every corner and attacks await us around every bend. But you're prepared for this. You're ready for this. You have all you need for this. Namely, you have the peace of Christ for this. And he tells you to appropriate in a similar way the peace of Christ in Ephesians 6, calling us in verse 11 to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, which he would love for nothing more than to destroy you internally before he ever destroys you externally. To make you doubt every promise he's ever spoken. To make you question every statement of truth he's ever said. If he can get you to do that, he hardly has to do anything to destroy the externals of your life. The relationships of your life, the choices of your life, those will go down the tubes with your thinking. So he is on the attack. Stand firm against him by putting on the armor of the Lord. And then he goes through the armor. Just look at it. The whole armor of God, verse 13, take it up, appropriate it, apply it. Live with it on at all times so you can withstand in the evil day. But what is that armor? Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. A well-equipped soldier in God's army has upon their head the helmet of salvation. Every thought, every worldview, every opinion operates underneath the protection of the gospel of peace. Everything you hear, everything you think, everything you say, everything in your mind is operating underneath the helmet of salvation in line with the gospel of peace. Next they have on the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness is protecting their vital organs? Certainly not their own righteousness, for that would be a flawed breastplate. 
It is the righteousness of Christ given to them to protect them from all of the attacks of the enemy which would seek to to drive a lethal blow into your vital organs. The seat of your life where you feel and think and are moved in your will to live and act. All starting in your heart, protected by the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. The gospel of peace secured by him. And then all of the the clothes that you have as a soldier wrapped together by the belt of truth. All that is you in your life is brought together by the truth of Christ. Christ who is Himself the truth gives you His truth as a belt to bind it all together and prepare you for action. Shod on your feet with the, the shoes equipped with the gospel of peace. You're going into war and you are given shoes that are equipped with the gospel of peace. A sure foundation to stand on any terrain. A sure foundation to charge any hill. A sure foundation to keep you firm no matter the power of the enemy attacking you. You stand in the unmovable shoes of the peace of the gospel of Christ. And then you are to hide behind in one hand the shield of faith by which you take up and claim and cling to the promises of God and the truth of God. Faith is simply taking God at His word. And you appropriate the peace you have with God by saying, God, you said it. I believe you. I hide behind it. No matter the storm that rolls, no matter the problems that come, I believe and trust in you. In the other hand, you wield the sword of the Spirit holding in your hand the Word of God to slay the the dragons of deceit and deception that come and attack you and seek to destroy you, take away your peace, cause anxiety and fear, keep you inactive in the work of the Lord, destroy your relationships and all that is your life. You've been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with one blow to kill those monsters. But you must put those on and stand firm with them on. Friend, you must appropriate the peace of Christ. Blessed assurance, peace is staying. Third assurance, quickly, Christ is leaving. Sounds like a weird assurance, but let me draw it out to you. Christ is leaving, therefore he says, you should rejoice. If you love me, he says to them back in John 14, then you would rejoice that I'm leaving if you love me as you should. Why? Because he's returning to his Father, and he says you should rejoice because the Father's greater than, than me. I want to deal first with that idea of Jesus saying the Father is greater than the Son. This verse has been the center point of controversy from the 4th century in the church until now. We're actually going to deal with it tonight. By God's providence, I did not design this. God brought it together. I'm going to lay before you the story of Athanasius who stood firm in the 4th century. The, The model for Athanasius was Athanasius contra munda. Athanasius against the world. 
40 years of ministry. He was exiled five times for a total of 17 years. Why? Because he held to the deity and humanity of Jesus. In a time when the church was saying, no, Jesus is a firstborn of God. He's the first creation of all of God's creation. Or he's some other aberration of divine man. That Arianism exists even to this day in cults like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that Jesus is a created being by God and is the first of the created being. And they come to this verse in John 14 and they say, look, Jesus himself said, the Father is greater than I. And when you just read it as is, you're like, uh, yeah, I guess. What does he mean? Well, the obvious answer is to take all that Jesus has said about himself just in this gospel. Just stick to the gospel of John. And how many times has he used the divine name, I am, ego, a me, seven times. In chapter 8, namely, he says it so clearly that all of the Jews around him pick up stones to stone him because they said, you make yourself equal to God. They understood it. But somehow we, reading John's gospel, get it confused and mixed up and read this verse and make this the standard by which we read all other verses. We need to understand them all together. They're saying the same thing. Jesus is one with the Father. He is truly and really and fully God and truly and really and fully man. So what does he mean when he says the Father is greater than I? Well, he is speaking obviously about his present position. He has humiliated himself, leaving heaven, choosing to set aside the full expression of his deity to inhabit humanity, to take upon himself human nature. And his deity is veiled behind his humanity, and it is a humble existence. He is the servant of all men, obeying even to the point of death, a cross kind of death. And he is saying to the disciples in the upper room, that's about to end. I'm about to finish my course. I'm about to receive back the glory and the expression and the fullness of it that I left. We know this explicitly from John 17, verse 5, when Jesus in the high priestly prayer prays, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a statement of position, of humiliation, that's about to give way to exaltation after his work is done. And because of that, he says, you should rejoice. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm almost done but they're sorrowful over what they're presently losing, right? We're often like this, aren't we? Rather than delight over what delights God, we are sad over what sorrows us. We see in our conflict and our pain and our difficulty only that which we're losing in the moment, which further stirs our anxiety and our fear over our own griefs. We, we see only our sorrow and our pain, feeding our own anxious thoughts. But we miss in that the joy of the Lord, like the disciples did here. So you're, you're in company. We, we do with them what they also did. 
out of tune with the, the things that bring our Savior great joy, even in our suffering and by our suffering. So it's clear that Jesus delights in a, a persevering faith when it is tested by trial and comes out the other side rejoicing in Him. Jesus rejoices in that. Jesus rejoices in a soul of one of His own that is further conformed to His image, looks more like Him through the press of hard things. And when it gets out the other side, it looks more like Jesus than it did when it entered in. And as He prepares us through that for the eternal weight of glory that we will one day know, we often, in our humanness, are weighed down by the temporary hurts and dark clouds of circumstances that we fail to see the brightness of His joy. So learn from our Lord as He speaks to His disciples. We ought rejoice over what our Savior rejoices over. We ought grieve over the hardship, while we also rejoice over what Christ rejoices in. Well, how is that an assurance for the disciples that Christ is leaving? Well, it's further confirmation that His work is complete, that their future is secured, that there will be a temporary absence that will give way to a a permanent presence. And it is yet coming. Fourth assurance, the apostles are ready, verse 29. He stated it in verse 25. He comes back to to it in verse 29. He says, listen, I've told you everything you need to know. You're predisposed to believe once they take place. John told us that in chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple and he says after Jesus was resurrected, we remembered these things. He says it again in chapter 12 when the uh, triumphal entry happens and he says after he was resurrected, we remembered these things. In other words, they're well prepared for his absence. It doesn't feel like it, but they're spring-loaded to believe. And he'll leave and their belief will be solidified and they will be set on fire and turn their world upside down. And to guarantee it, he's going to send his spirit to them to teach them and to remind them and empower them and use them. And so too, beloved, with us. He gives you all that you need. The words of Scripture, the Spirit of truth to guide you along. The more you immerse yourself in the Word, the more prepared you are to walk by faith. To appropriate the the spiritual armor to face the attack of the enemy. In His absence, Jesus has given us this body of proof in His written Word to prepare us and to cause us to walk by faith. Last assurance, Christ will win. Christ will win. He tells them that the conversation is about to end. The ruler of the world is coming, and this ruler has no claim on him. Rather, only the Father has a claim on him, Jesus says. That he has obeyed Jesus, and he does it to the very end, so that the whole world will know that Jesus loves the Father. So very much here, but focus on the big idea. Satan's coming to attack through the betrayal of Judas, through the arrest of the soldiers, through the trial before the Sanhedrin, eventually through the Roman cross, Satan is at work. Jesus in Luke 23, Luke 22 calls it the hour of the power of darkness. 
There's an unleashing of the wicked beast of Genesis 3 upon our Lord and upon His disciples in this hour. But Jesus wants His disciples to know before it ever happens that darkness is not in control here. Darkness does not win here. Satan has a claim on Jesus, on Judas, excuse me. Judas betraying, rebelling against the truth. Chapter 13, John told us Satan entered into Judas. Judas is under the control of Satan to perform his will. But now Jesus says clearly to his disciples who remain, Satan has no claim on me. Literally meaning he has nothing in me or he has nothing on me. It's a Hebraism, which is a, a way of saying that, that Satan's got nothing. He has no claim against me. He, he can't throw any accusation against me that will stick. There's no charge he can bring that will prove my guilt. Jesus says, I am pure and perfect and sinless. Therefore, you ought to know, when I hang on that cross, it is not for the payment and punishment of my own sins. For Satan has no claim on me. Rather, you must know when I go to the cross, Jesus says, it is out of loving obedience to the Father. And in this way, Christ will win. When we think of the cross, we rightly so think of God's love for us, right? The focal point as we think of the cross is how much God loved us and giving His Son and His Son willingly dying in our place. When Jesus thinks of the cross, it's a different take. When he anticipates Calvary and his death there, his focal point is the expression of his love for the Father. He is completing and finishing his course of humble obedience. The cross is the, the pinnacle expression of Jesus' love for his Father. It's the indisputable, unending, undeniable display of the Son's obedient love for the Father who sent Him. That He would obey even to the point of death, even a cross kind of death. Friend, because that is true, if you are in Christ, Satan has no claim on you. You, clothed in His righteousness, your sin given to Him, paid for fully on the cross of Calvary, you now can say with Christ, Satan has no claim on me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Brother or sister, you're hurting today, battling fear and anxiety and struggle because Jesus is physically absent. Our world's a mess because He's not here. He is soon returning to deal with rebellious and unrepentant sinners to once and for all establish His rule and reign. But until that happens you can have great comfort. The Spirit is here. Christ has won. And we, we too will soon win fully in Him. And the peace of Christ has been given to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for all these glorious truths given to us by your Son. Help us now, having heard them, to apply them, to appropriate them to our very hearts and minds to walk moment by moment because these are true in the peace we've been given in your Son. 
We pray for those among us who may not yet know this peace with you through Christ. Father, may today be the day of their salvation. Would you rescue them from their sin and give them peace with you to the praise and honor of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.